Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Jamie Burke. Jamie has been investing in Web3, crypto, or the blockchain ecosystem. The name has changed over the years since 2014. That's eight years, which is a very long time. In this time, he has seen a lot. He is the founder at Outlier Ventures, and you'll hear more details in the conversation, but they're very much moving toward the Y Combinator of Web3. I'm a mentor there, and they run a really, really tight ship. There's four cohorts running concurrently right now. Just insane the amount of the high quality founders going through there. So really great resource for those Web3 founders looking for a potential accelerator in the Web3 space. Jamie sees a lot of early stage startups and knows where investor money is headed and, and which might be predictive of where the space, the Web3 space overall could be headed. I really enjoyed this conversation. We covered a quick update for the crypto ecosystem. Spoiler, it's not dead. And then we went into a lot more detail on Outlier Ventures investment thesis or themes going forward, including the open metaverse, MetaFi, NFTs as social media, the experience of Web3 or UX, and much, much more. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with someone you know, or give it a like, review, or comment on whichever platform you're consuming it on. I really appreciate these things. This is a great episode discussing overall where the Web3 space could be going, and definitely why it's not going to be a crypto winter, according to Jamie. Enjoy. Jamie, good to see you. Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me on. Shame we missed each other in New York to play ping pong and fluff world, fluff party. Right? Just, yeah, the things we say in crypto world, right? Just that that statement is hilarious, but I'm absolutely yeah, gutted. <laughs> play ping pong at fluff world. Well, you know, one day yeah, it'll be in the yeah. metaverse and we'll be able to do it with our VR headsets from the comfort of our own home. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, you know, I've been excited to have you on this and you people within the crypto space know who you are but my audience is for alternative investors people kind of casually in crypto at times so let's do a quick overview of who you are and what you're working on before we kind of jump into the meat of it sure well look thanks for having me on yeah i've been in crypto professionally without live ventures for just over eight years. So we always kind of joke it, it was dangerously early. And during those eight years, we've taken on lots of different forms as we've kind of evolved with the market. We've been a venture studio when there weren't really startups to invest in. We were an incubator when we realized a lot of infrastructure had to be built before these use cases would happen at scale. And then for the last three and a half years, Maybe four, we've been an accelerator. As that kind of stacks matured, as the industry's matured, you can even call it an industry, maybe. And we're starting to see, you know, this, this technology, this Web3 stack, as it's called, being applied to, to lots of different industries. And of course, now it's, it's sucking in talent from all over the place, not just this little 
you know, pool of natives, increasingly so from Web2. And yeah, so we're now at the point where we're, if I was going to guess, I would say our portfolio is about 140, maybe. I say maybe just because we've got quite large cohorts going on at the moment. I think there are four running in parallel with between six to 10. But this year we're on track to accelerate 200 Web3 startups. And there's nothing really that's saying we we can't do that. I think we've had 2,000 applications from all around the world last couple of quarters. And a quality of founders really improving, maturity of, of startups improving. So yeah, shorthand, I guess now you could probably consider us as the kind of Y combinator of Web3. The only difference is we're still a bit more focused on quality rather than the kind of volumes that you'd see in a Y Combinator cohort. I think they do up to 100 in a cohort now. We don't do any any more than 10 in a cohort, but we parallelize it and do multiple cohorts famously. Yeah, that's in- incredible. And I mean, investing in crypto, which is now called Web3, you've seen the de- the definitions change as well. But for eight years, that's that's incredible. So I definitely want to get into kind of where you think the, the industry is going, seeing this many projects and seeing where capital is being allocated. But first, I wanted to start, I mean, this is being recorded end of June, Crypto is ugly, down 76%, you know, whichever coin you kind of look at or the the majors. So it's ugly. And I think you just had a piece saying that why it's not crypto winter. I wanted to start with that because it certainly is ugly right now. And I think people would appreciate why it's not crypto winter. Yeah. Well, obviously you have to acknowledge what's going on in, in the secondary markets. So down from 3 trillion to just sub one. And I think the top 100 digital assets are down up to 90%. And of course, a lot of that volatility has primarily happened in, what are we now, Q2? But it's been going on for some time, right? Since you know Q3 last year, we had a 70% haircut and it was a bit sideways and it went up a bit. And then of course... The macro environment unbelievably got worse. You know, looking at it from the vantage point of last year, it can't possibly be worse than this year. And and then here we are looking at, you know, everything from nuclear Armageddon to what is it now, monkeypox. So, so strange macro environment. Of course, that's affected almost every asset class one way or the other. You know, equities negatively, big tech negatively, not as much as crypto, but, but significantly. And, you know, we're seeing layoffs around the board, right? The kind of larger big tech players, the larger players in in crypto, primarily exchanges and stuff like that. So a lot of the retail money or the kind of demands within the secondary markets dried up. And that's actually both retail and institutional. You know, there were some kind of native hedge funds in the space that apparently were over leveraged. And so you know, this macro environment stress tested this like nascent financial system that we've been building bottom up over the last, you know, decade plus in crypto. And a few of its innovations, you know, namely Terra and algorithmic stablecoin, and then the associated Luna ecosystem collapsed out of nowhere. And I mean, it's no surprise that if one thing's going to go down, it would be an algorithmic stablecoin. It's definitely the more exotic 
an experimental end of the market. Although it did, you know, it shook a lot of people. I know a lot of people that were actively involved in the design of that. And, you know, they were surprised. They were surprised it happened, happened that quickly. And of course, we can blame extraordinary times, but at the end of the day, stable coins are supposed to be stable. And that undermines trust in the overall crypto ecosystem because that was seen as a safe place to kind of park capital away from volatility or in times of volatility. So for that to go down um, and then for the, the whole lunar ecosystem to collapse around, it was, was quite shocking. Some people have called it the Lehman moment. I don't know. But actually, you know, if you look at the lunar ecosystem, there was, there was a huge amount of startups building over there. It wasn't some kind of like scam coin. It was a very, very active ecosystem. There were hundreds, if not thousands of startups that were actively building that then had to switch and, and change their plan entirely and the stack. So, so that was kind of really the catalyst that really took the sideways market into a bit of a downward spiral. As I said, now 90% haircuts. And of course, that's what everybody looks at, right? That's the most obvious barometer of the health of crypto. And it's the one that mo the most people are exposed to. It's, you know, the thing that indicates whether people feel rich or, or poor. Of course, it's all notional wealth often, unless you, you know, realize your gains somehow. But, you know, and this is true for me is, is for anyone else in crypto. If you're in crypto, you're not necessarily thinking about getting your money out of crypto and in, into, into fear. That's not necessarily the end goal. But it left a lot of people exposed and... It, it led to this kind of unwinding of leverage. And there's some very exotic forms of, of leverage, not necessarily more exotic than we've seen in traditional finance, but given its nascency, it was quite, quite shocking. So that's the secondary market. And there's definitely not much new demand coming into it. Of course, crypto, like tech stock generally, like COVID stock, like meme stock, whatever you want to call it, benefited from this, you know, helicoptering of money, this kind of period of quantity, it enjoyed it. And now that's again, drying up, it, it, it's, it's suffering from that too, like everything else. So what was interesting, though, is the degree to which crypto was affected by the wider macro environment. I think a lot of people felt, if not a hedge, it was perhaps somehow still separate, right? And it, it would be driven by it by its own kinds of momentum. And I think it's a pro and a con that this has demonstrated that crypto is mainstream enough now that the people who hold crypto, be them retail or institutions, their sentiment towards crypto is affected by what's happening in a wider macro, macro environment. So it's got its big boy pants on and, and because it's a permissionless 24 environment with lower levels of liquidity, it sees more extreme volatility play out when that sentiment's negative. So Bit of a monologue, but that's kind of, you know, the, the wider market. That's what everyone sees. And as you say, it's pretty open. However, to this point of, does that then qualify this for a crypto winter? A winter is different to a bear market. A winter typically used in the context of technology was first used back in the 80s, 83, when I was about two, referring to AI. And the AI went to end up going on for decades. And that was really defined as, negative sentiment within the technology community itself. That kind of contagion then in, in press, that led to a dry up in R&D funding and then kind of wider later stage funding for it to be commercialized. And, and that was pretty brutal. It was decades long, but it's also 
you know, historically quite normal for, you know, information technologies to kind of go through these cycles. Now, I, and we did have one of those 2018 to 2020 in crypto. I think objectively you could say all of those things were true. We were investing back then, we were accelerating Web3 startups. And actually the trick was to help them raise money without saying they're a Web3 startup because nobody would give them any money then. So there had to be anything other than a Web3 startup, even though in their DNA and their business model, that's actually what, what they were, it's what they wanted to be. But it was hard, you know, money dried up, venture capital dried up, and there was no secondary demand. And so it was, it was pretty desolate. However, out of that came NFTs, DeFi, these kind of innovation triggers that led to the next cycle. We had DeFi summer in, in 2020. NFTs 21. And, and prior to that, prior to the last crypto winter 2017 was the ICO, initial coin offering. All of these three things were innovation triggers where a new innovation was introduced that allowed for a native form of value to be created that could then be recycled, draws headlines, positive PR, and then sucks in some, some new money from somewhere in the secondary market. Now, if we look at where we are today, based on those measures of a technology cycle, well, definitely negative sentiment within the community, not all the community, but certainly the newer community, the community that joined in the last 12 months, who probably lost a lot of money and think it's all a scam and it's all over and that's it and, and crypto's dead. Or at least, you know, they, they wish it to be dead. That could also be true for the hedge funds that have kind of lost their, lost their shirt in the market. Naturally, the press picks up on this. The, the thing about crypto is it's incredibly sensational. You know, the headlines, the numbers, the volatility. And so, yes, there's negative sentiment within parts of the community. There's definitely negative sentiment within the press. And there's definitely capital dried up in the secondary market, the demand for these things. But the interesting thing is from the vantage point of being an accelerator is there's two sides to funding, right? There's the funding, which everyone sees in the secondary market. And then there's the venture side, which not many people necessarily see unless you're operating at that stage or you're a startup trying to fundraise, pre-seed, seed, maybe series. And interestingly, this is relatively healthy, right? So we've had $15 billion allocated to new funds, Q1, Q2, explicitly for Web3, either partially or wholly. That's up from $12 billion over the same period last year. So more money than ever that has to be deployed to the space. I would argue it's probably overcapitalized, but there's, there's still more good capital than there is good projects that deserve it. We're looking at the velocity of deal-making. It has slowed down because funds are actually doing due diligence now. They actually have the time to do due diligence. A lot of VCs... They, they just were sucked into having to write a check in 48 hours. Otherwise, you miss out. Things were oversubscribed in what are called party rounds, right? You know, you'd just follow. One of your peers would go in and everyone would just ape in. And if you, if you didn't play that game, you didn't get exposure. And it didn't matter, you know, how much you hated it. If you didn't play the game, you were out. That's over. There's definitely a buyer's market now. VCs want to do due diligence. Um, but doing due diligence... It, you have the human capital constraint, right? So you've only got three, four people. This is incredibly complex technically. Order of magnitude more complex than classic venture. Deal making slowed down as a consequence. Velocity of you know the, the kind of investing slowed down.
But also the interesting thing is, but not by much, right? Rounds are still closing, top decile of projects, still oversubscribed. It's just in the, in the remaining 90% or so that slow down. And valuations are only 25% down from all-time high valuations we were seeing you know, a couple of quarters ago. So you would have to see that disappear entirely as well, from my perspective, to call it a technology winter. So the question then is, can this pool of venture capital bridges into the next bull run where there's going to be some new form of demand in the secondary market? And that's the big question. A, can the venture capital last that long? I think it probably can. But where does the new demand come from? Yeah, and that's the innovation that we have to see to kind of like bring in new money and and kind of keep this thing going. I do hear that a lot, the amount of sheer capital on the sidelines looking for good deals in the space. And I was just reading a little bit from Howard Marks's books, Master the Market Cycle, and he talks about like these hype cycles, right? And the the fear of missing out, you got to don't do your due diligence, you've got to get the money in to get into this deal. That totally was happening last year. It was just just bananas. But with crypto, like valuations down 25%, secondary, like liquid tokens down 80%. How much do you think about macro impacting this? Because it does, right? And if we enter this, this world of quantitative tightening, as opposed to free and easy money, I mean, that will continue to impact the secondary, which will trickle back to the primary, like initial fundraising and kind of squash innovation a bit and delay that next that next cycle. So I guess how much do you worry about macro when kind of thinking about allocating in this space? Yeah, well, I mean the challenge is you're probably better qualified, you know, than than me to to talk about the potential impact of that. That said, of course, you know, we at Outlier, we've got a lot of very experienced TradFi, you know, people who understand capital markets infinitely better than I do, whether it's commodities or, you know, other ends of the spectrum. And as I said, I think increasingly macro affects crypto. You know, for a long time, that wasn't the case. We were kind of in our own bubble to a degree. But of course, as I said, we, we definitely benefited from, from that quantity. But the interesting thing is, well, I, and maybe to continue that thought, you know, Raul Pal is a good friend of mine. I've been on his pod. He's been on my pod. You know, not so long ago, he was talking about crypto as the only macro around, which was definitely true. You know, at that point, hedge funds were, you know, barely justifying their existence in many cases, right? Now there's lots of other forms of macro out there, commodities and everything else that's going to suck attention and, and, and kind of capital away. That said, you know, and I, I think it's kind of surprising, it's surprising to me that funds, despite these conditions, are still getting LPs to invest. A lot of those LPs are still pension funds, make quite conservative money, but they understand they understand the Web3 narrative now where previously, you know, crypto was just seen as purely speculative, kind of the Warren Buffett, you know, view. And I think now there's an understanding that there is something here. I think... It's resiliency during periods like this are when it wins the confidence of, you know, 
fund managers, serious fund managers. And the one thing about crypto is it's incredibly resilient. It, it bounces back. Okay, it might take the shock a lot harder than, than you know other assets, but it also bounces back a lot harder. And you know we've seen a little bit of stabilizing in the markets now. But coming back to the point I was saying earlier about the thing that drives bull runs in crypto, favorable macro environment for sure, but these kind of innovation triggers, because at the end of the day, for better or for worse, you know, crypto enables new forms of like money printing presses, value printing presses, right? So the Gutenberg, it's the effect of the Gutenberg printing press applied to money, applied to, you know, assets, digital commodities. And of course that means there's a load of rubbish happens, but you know, law of math, enough monkeys on typewriters and you're going to get Shakespeare. And so that's why I always have confidence in crypto, right? It's somebody's always going to find a way to deliver value here. And we, we've got this amazing brain trust, increasingly amazing brain trust, not just people who are technologists, but people coming from TradFi. You know, the thing that trapped a lot of brilliant talent in Web2 was these stock options. Well, guess what? They're not really as valuable as they once were. They're not the thing that makes you go, oh, do I really want to go to Web3? That looks really risky versus my job at Facebook, you know, let alone being probably a pariah amongst your friends now that like the, the kind of... The security of that job is, is no longer interesting. And if you're remotely curious about the future, this is where the innovation is happening. It is effectively one big innovation sandbox, right? So it's naturally sucking a lot of talent. And, you know, whether it's a new form of digital value that's created that I'm not aware of yet, or whether it's a range of use cases leveraging existing innovations, I think a big one will be around NFTs, going beyond art, thinking about these things as digital consumables. You know, that is going to allow for entirely new forms of value creation, both applied to existing industries and enabling entirely new ones. And so if I'm looking around going, well, where is GDP growth going to come from? I, I'm, I'm looking at Web3 or the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. That's where new economic activity is going to happen that's not constrained by supply chains. It's not constrained by any kind of decoupling or, you know, relocalization, re reshoring, onshoring of industry. It's the only thing that can actually continue to be a form of globalism, right? In everything else where we're seeing, you know, increased national sentiment or a breakdown in international trade, Web3 and what we refer to as the open metaverse is the thing that's going to continue to be this, this global, permissionless, frictionless network. So my bet is that's where growth's going to happen. And if that's true, then I think it's only going to be natural that money that's looking for value is going to find its way there. Exactly what those triggers are, I don't know. I actually expect that the new money that will come into crypto in this next bull run will be more institutional because, you know, with the retail side, there's too many other factors happening, inflation and everything else that's going to affect what people spend digitally. We can already see that with subscription you know, for Netflix or whatever else. That's also going to extend into NFTs or, and, and probably game. But I think large institutions looking to park their money are going to realize these are the digital supply chains of the future. Most digital assets are kind of commodities that you need to consume and use to, to participate in those supply chains. 
And so it makes sense to, to get a bag of them. Yeah, I think that's very important to think about and, and very, very good points. But you mentioned you weren't quite sure what would be the next catalyst, but arguably you're probably one of the better people within the space being one of the first institutional investors in crypto, certainly in Europe, if not globally, but eight years within crypto, all of the projects you're seeing coming through your seed investments, kind of seeing where smart money or institutional capital is allocating or placing their bets. So let's, let's talk about some of these like potential next catalysts or kind of themes that you're seeing of where, you know, smart money is, is allocating their time and energy and capital. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just want to stress that, you know, the interesting thing about being an accelerator is you actually don't need to be a genius, right? It's pattern recognition and you have the benefit of volume. And because of the stage, it, it just gives you a six to 12 month window on the market, right? Actually, if you're a really good accelerator, you're kind of in the sweet spot. You're not too early. You're not too late. You're accelerating things where there's about to become demand, but it's not quite yet there, yet, there yet, so it's not too competitive. And so we're always trying to just jockey into to, to, to that spot. And hopefully we're doing okay about it. But to get there, you got to speak to thousands of startups, right? So we've spoken to 2000 just in the last two quarters. <coughs> Excuse me, I think all going well over the course of this year. We'll do a form of due diligence on at least 4,000 from all around the world, all kinds of quality, huge spectrum of like range of application. And so you just start doing some basic pattern recognition that allows you to go, okay, well, you know, it seems to be that there's this wave of startup that's working on roughly the same problem from slightly different angles. And you know, this is where momentum seems to be happening, both technologically, but then also in terms of market, there seems to be a degree of market fit there. And so, you know, that led us to what was it? I think like first week of January, I always get the years mixed up now with COVID. So we're 22, 21. I do too. Every, every time. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think it's January 20. Yeah, January 21. You know, we released a paper called The Open Metaverse. This was before NFTs really exploded. It was before Facebook rebranded as Meta and, you know, brought this Metaverse narrative. And actually, we even surprised ourselves because when we were doing it, we were writing it Q4 20 based upon the insights we were seeing from the accelerator. And we thought, I mean, people aren't even using the term Web3 yet. Should we really try and introduce a whole new term? And I'm not saying it was us solely that introduced the metaverse, but you know, we certainly helped contribute to it. And we were like, oh, I mean, we this is our vision for the next decade, but maybe it's too early to talk about it. And we almost didn't do it. And I'm really glad we did. But within that, we kind of laid out that this Web3 stack that we'd been seeing applied primarily in finance, like obvious financial use cases, DeFi, et cetera, money payments, was beginning to be applied into creative industries, media, entertainment. It was beginning to converge with other technologies like AR, VR. And so for us, Web3 was an open source stack of technologies that would enable a, a more open metaverse versus kind of the 
Facebook Meta's vision for a more closed one. And so that's still a really big part of our thesis. It's still what we see evidenced in a lot of the startups that we speak to. But we've begun to see a, a nuance to it, which we call Metafy. And I'm sorry, your viewers are probably hating me now because I'm using all these stupid buzzwords. But that, that's ultimately what the job of a, a VC and an accelerator is, right? You've got to help kind of frame the narrative. And Metafy really is, we're starting to see new forms of collateral in the metaverse being brought on chain um, that can be borrowed and lent against in DeFi. And now that sounds really niche. But actually, when you consider all the forms of value that today are digital, but that can't be used as collateral, they're not owned and controlled by the user directly. They are owned by a platform. They're kind of rented to somebody on the platform. And they certainly couldn't go into a bank and get a short-term loan against them, right? Or let's say, you know, you're an influencer on social media I mean, you have irregular income, you could be deplatformed, like that's not a job as far as the bank's concerned. Maybe rightfully so, I don't know. But but for some people, that is how they drive an income and influence is a form of digital value, especially in an attention economy. So, you know, enabling a gamer or somebody in the creative industries, a musician or an influencer to be able to realize these forms of value in a digital way that can become collateral offers i believe a huge boost to gdp and things that can be taxed by the way which is of course what all governments are looking for right now to offset all this debt that they've racked up but also will create a huge form of financial inclusion i mean we're talking about just in gaming alone billions of dollars of value trapped in platforms the only people that see any value from that currently are the shareholders of those platforms. Most of those platforms aren't paying much tax anyway, you know, they're offshore or whatever. And so everybody's kind of missing out other than the shareholders of these platforms. And so enabling gamers to take control of assets, to turn them into collateral alone as a use case is, is going to be huge. So that's kind of the, the Metafy narrative. But another big one we're starting to see which sadly doesn't yet have a buzzword. So if anybody can think of one, then please let me know. Is NFTs as a form of social media and like reinventing social media without the platform. So, you know, we're starting to see a lot of innovation happen around identity, reputation, and the social graph. You know, social graph being how Facebook and Google effectively monetize relationships between people and information flows. And so a lot of people are now looking at that in the context of Web3. And so you're seeing things like self-sovereign identity. You're seeing VCs, verifiable claims, DIDs, decentralized identifiers. These aren't innovations that necessarily need a blockchain, <clears throat> but we believe are starting to be connected and applied to blockchains, which gives a business case for them to function at scale rather than just be a social good. And then looking at NFTs, wallets as effectively a social profile and, and demonstrating belonging and connectedness to communities where the NFT is almost like atomized socialness. But again, that can also be a form of kind of collateral. It can have a financial value. And so I think that's going to be a really exciting theme. And then alongside that is the experience of Web3. So Web3 is notoriously 
a poor user experience. You know, a lot of people kind of the analog is dial up, you know, dial up internet experience, right? Just there's so many steps to actually get to the thing that you want. And there's so much lag that for most people, it's just not worth it, right? Unless you're a hardcore nerd, you're just not going to put up with any of that. <clears throat> so we're seeing a lot of that complexity be abstracted away. And there's a big focus on, you know, making Web3 more usable, but then the experience of Web3 more immersive. <clears throat> and this comes into the metaverse narrative and the open metaverse narrative, which is where we can begin to have what, what we're calling de-commerce, decentralized commerce. So I can have a shopping experience. It could be a, you know, one-to-one or one-to-platform experience. It could be a social shopping experience. It could be an in-game, in-world retail experience. But where the kind of requirement for that experience kind of, there's a higher requirement, right? You know, a luxury retailer doesn't want to reduce down, you know, their Gucci handbag or, or whatever to a few pixels. They want it to be as rich as it is in real life. So how that then integrates into VR, AR, and everything else. So we're seeing this continuation of convergence of these technologies, AR, VR, blockchain, and then AI, as we're starting to look at autonomous representatives, extensions of ourselves. So, you know, rather than me having to do everything manually on the internet, going to Google, you know, type in the thing that I want, search through its results, identify the most affordable one, Eventually, we can, as we move away from platforms to potential agent-based systems, where effectively I can have an agent, I own it, not the platform, not like Alexa, which is owned by Amazon. It serves Amazon, it's data serves Amazon, but have an agent that represents me. I can have that with surety. I can audit what it does on-chain. I can make sense of the permissions it has, and it can increasingly carry out autonomous economic activity on my behalf on chain. Now that one's a little bit further out, but a lot closer than many people would think. And so kind of like in summary, with all of those things, feeling short to midterm, it's very difficult to not be bullish about the space, but I'm probably biased because I spent all day working with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are optimists. So we think anything's possible, right? We're not sat around thinking around what's wrong with the world. We're thinking about like, what, what can we do? No, definitely. And, and at, at times, many times to a fault, right? Just being completely eternal optimist about it. But that's what drives us to do the most idiotic things like being a founder right. and, you know, bashing your head up against the wall. I, the UI UX, i like the experience of Web3 is a big one. I mean, anybody that's been in crypto, it doesn't matter. You've been in crypto for as long as you to onboard somebody new from zero into like having something and buying an NFT or whatever. It is just painful and excruciatingly terrible. So I completely, very, very interesting investment thesis on a lot of these. I think these are certainly some of the main trends that will happen. It's just a matter of timing, whether these are in the next six months or or four years, but eventually they'll be there. I wanted to j- jump into one just in a little bit more detail would be the the idea of the open metaverse. Big fan, open, transparent, permissionless metaverse, but it's kind of against the big bad 
wolf at this point of you know Facebook, which is Meta. How do you how do you see this kind of playing out? Because there's Facebook, Meta has deep pockets, lots of access to talent. Web three is getting there, but not quite there. But then also like political capital, and these things get quite political if it gets as big as we expect it to be. So I guess how do you see kind of the open versus closed metaverse shaping out? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> I actually think the the potential kind of attribute that is perhaps, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? But it, it is the political capital, right? So on the one hand, Web2 is under siege, certainly in Europe, and has been for some time, for antisocial behavior, right? Whether it's data privacy and data violations, you know, whether it's manipulation of users and election results, whether it's, you know, all the other naughty stuff that not paying taxes or like whatever it is. So on the one hand, you know, in certain parts of the political spectrum, Web2, big tech are pariahs. However, on the other hand, you know, they are very effective at lobbying. And, you know, they offer the opportunity because they're they're centralized to be coerced. And governments quite like that. Right. And so when they're presented with permissionless, you know, pseudo anonymous systems that preserve the identity and the sovereignty of the individual, which I can't really control versus a platform which I can coerce. I mean, Facebook Libra is a perfect example of that. They managed to kill that pretty much overnight as soon as it was set out as an intent by Facebook. Um, in a way that they couldn't with Ethereum. And so I think it's much more nuanced than people think, you know, and I think increasingly a lot of regulators, of course, want to, and understandably want to push CBDC, central backed digital currencies. The biggest problem with crypto actually is stable coins. And again, I can understand that, right? I mean, firstly, you know, you want, you want the kind of homogeny of the dollar to, to, continue to be successful. You also want a financial system that you can control, stabilize, whatever you think they're doing. And naturally, you know, stable coins in crypto, I think it's fair to say they need to do a better job at making their case. Whether it's those that are asset backed somehow, okay, like show us the assets, like how much. The, the challenge is, because anything on-chain has this hyper-transparency, as we've seen with the Three Arrows, the, the, the crypto hedge fund, right? It, it, it's, it's very easy to be attacked. Like if people know exactly how much it's going to cost to attack you and, and where you're leveraged, I mean, that, that is a vulnerability. It's a systemic risk. And so there's a natural desire for opacity to kind of obfuscate and, and for them to manage that risk whilst they're still relatively small compared to, you know, a lot of financial institutions who might want to take them down or, or, or make a profit. But I think we can do better in, in degree of transparency, winning the confidence of regulators. Uh, at the same time, I believe in the innovation of algorithmic stable coins, incredibly hard to pull off as we've just seen with Terra, precisely because I believe we need a stable coin that is out of the control or permission of a regulator, at least 
one, just as a hedge against that system, a hedge against authoritarianism. But at the same time, that's naturally going to be risky. And so, you know, I think the whole battle is going to be primarily centered around stable coins and platforms where you can stop them launching their own digital asset and then insert a CBDC is going to be very appealing to regulators right now especially in places like China, where they've effectively already done it. They've rolled out across Tencent and Alibaba overnight, but also in the West. You know, they all have the tendency to, to tyranny, right? If they, can, if they can get away with it, to control it. And so they've kind of, it's what happens to the rest of it, right? Things that I believe are digital commodities. We're starting to see that battle played out or continue to be played out between the SEC and this, this CFTC, the, the, the Commodities Commission in the US, like who, who owns and controls it, who has purview on it. I, I think that the reality is both will probably coexist. I think there is a big difference though, you know, Facebook, Oculus and Meta and whatever they're building now, then that's not, in my mind, is not the metaverse. It's a closed platform app ecosystem just like fortnite is a closed game it's a very good game it's a very popular game but it's a game it's not the metaverse the metaverse needs to be meta it needs to be you know more more than one thing more than one instance it needs to have a monopoly it needs to be one platform with a complete monopoly which is the dystopic view of the metaverse or it needs to be a system that is meta to all verses hence the metaverse and so I think that all of these things are interesting in isolation, but they don't equate to the, to the metaverse. And so using that definition, the closest thing we've got to the metaverse is crypto. It is the only economic system that is by design bigger than any one platform that allows transferability and economic interoperability across platforms. And therefore, in my mind, has the most likelihood to realize the vision of the metaverse. But to interact with it, you have to adopt some of its DNA. And so you can see Facebook meta trying to figure that out right now. With Instagram, they're going to roll out NFTs. What flavor of NFTs? We don't. But if you want the benefit of the liquidity that comes from opening up and connecting to a bigger economic system, then you have to make compromises. And that's usually around the relationship between the platform and the individual. So I see these things kind of coexisting. The only way Facebook or any large big tech company has the opportunity to be Part of the metaverse is either by adopting crypto or by creating some slightly perverse permissioned ecosystem with other big tech backed by a CBDC, which, which is a high degree of probability, actually, right? Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's going to be, you know, it's going to be secure. They can revoke a transaction. It's going to be easy to... It's going to be safe. They'll yeah. pitch the whole safe thing to users. Be very appealing to the average user. Not everybody, not everybody values sovereignty yet until it's too late, sadly. Until it's too late, until you need to. I mean, the, the, the most of the people, it doesn't matter. Everything works until it doesn't, right? I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I could definitely end up seeing some sort of battle like that. With, with, with most crypto people, I mean, I agree with many of your theses, the way that you're thinking. Curious, what what blind spots do we potentially have believing in these things, or what like 
insurmountable hurdle, not insurmountable, but very, very difficult hurdle that we'll need to come overcome. Could you see kind of popping up? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I will be, I'll be honest and say, I, I have my concerns about Web3. I think to not, it would be dangerous, right? It, I would be doing a disservice to the startups that I work with. It would be a disservice to, I've got a nine-year-old daughter and I look at the way that the web is now and it looks pretty awful. But I also remember, you know, back in the Arab Spring and we thought social media was going to change the world for the better. And actually, you know, arguably on the one hand, it's enabled everybody to be a publisher and it's kind of created perhaps a more tr truer total view of the world. But actually, it's distorted what is truth. You know, it's like very hard to know who to trust on the internet anymore. And so I think it's natural, given the complexity of Web3, that we can sleepwalk into making some fundamental design errors. You look at Tim Berners-Lee now. I mean, even Mark Andreessen of A16Z, Brendan, Brave Browser. These were the people that created the web as we know it. Sometimes overnight, you know, they made an innovation, rolled it out, and okay, this now becomes the cookie standard that defines the business model for web. They're all trying to fix the mistakes that they made with their investment now in Web3, either as investors or as founders. And I can see us doing exactly the same thing with Web3 now. If we're not really intentional about what we're doing, I think whilst I primarily am focused on the sovereignty of the individual, I also acknowledge I'm not a hardcore libertarian, so I don't think you can abstract the individual out of their social context. So I think we need to be thinking about the individual and collectivism, which, by the way, is what excites me about Web3, because on the one hand, it enables the sovereignty of the individual, but through things like DAOs, allows for a form of fluid collectivism. If you can have both of those things, you could effectively reconcile, you know, one of the most fundamental political, social, economic tensions of, you know, last century or so. So, so there's potential there, but at the moment, the focus is all about the individual, abstracted away from the physical place that they live. Not everybody's going to be a digital nomad. Not everybody's going to jet off to Dubai because the place that they live in sucks and this, the social system's collapsing. Right, you're going to leave behind a load of malcontents, discontents. You know, we can't we can't just pretend that they don't exist, right? So, so that's a concern. And then I think the kind of third one is, which again is linked to the individual, it's anonymity to its extreme form, and based on this zealous focus of privacy. So, I like privacy. I understand. In many trustless environments, it can be a matter of life or death. But at the same time, again, I've got a daughter. I am concerned how she navigates the internet, you know, in her adolescence. And it's broken at the moment. And I think taking it to the extreme that everybody can have high degrees of anonymity, like you see what happens without a reputation system behind that. You end up with like anarchy, right? You know, people, there's more bullying, there's more trolling. It's just not a pleasant way to experience the internet. It's not a pleasant way to socialize. And so I have 
some concerns around that too, you know. So these are all things I think can be solved if we are intentional as an industry and we're not zealous about, you know, we're not kind of being maximalists about sovereignty. We're not being maximalists about, you know, some of these principles. And we don't try to just be abstract ourselves and our industry away from society. I think we have to, we've got a social obligation to think these things through before it's too late. And then we spend another two decades trying to fix it again, you know, it's, it wouldn't make sense. Oh, I love it. And Jamie, I could, I could talk to you for hours about this, but just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll have to cut it. Otherwise, again, this is fascinating, fascinating, but great to have an inside look on kind of where the industry could be going and certainly why it's not going to be a crypto winter. Bear market, maybe, perhaps. Well, definitely, I guess, by <laughs> terminology alone. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel and a lot of fascinating things that a lot of, and more and more, very, very smart people, passionate people are working on. So just to kind of close this off, where can my listeners find out more about you, Outlier Ventures? Where would you like to send them? So firstly, thanks for having me on. Great chat. And thanks for giving me the latitude to go a little bit all over the place. Hopefully you didn't, didn't, didn't go too much off piece. You can find me at Jamie247 on Twitter. That's the, the place that I'm most active. And Outlier Ventures is outlierventures.io. If you're a startup entering Web3 or already actively building Web3 and thinking about how you're going to you know, fundraise, capitalize, take your project to market, you can go to outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We're perpetually, like we're, we're constantly recruiting. We don't switch recruitment off, even though we run you know, seasons of, of, of programs. So apply, it's never too early. We'll always try and give you feedback to help you kind of come back, reapply if you don't get in the first time. Um, we only accept a sub 5% of all applications at any one time. And, you know, if you're a mentor or an investor looking to invest in the space, again, connect with us. You'll see various signposting on the website. As an accelerator, that's effectively our job. Um, we've got 100 plus full-time staff, but even with that, we can't possibly have all the competencies you need for Web3 startups. So we, we lean and rely upon a, a really strong mentor network. And I'd highly recommend, it's a great place for you to learn as much as it is for you to teach through exposure to the space. And yeah, and you know, if you're an investor looking to allocate from an angel family office all the way up to a VC, we'd love to kind of syndicate deal flow to you and help you develop your thesis for the space. Jamie, it's been awesome. I'll make sure and link all of those things in the show notes and great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.